Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation podcast. I'm Julia Fawkes, Communications Editor at the ETF, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking to the ETF CEO, David Russell, and Director for Diversity at the ETF and AOC, Jeff Greenwich, about what an inclusive FE sector looks like for learners, staff, and stakeholders, and what their contribution is to making that happen. I'm David Russell, I'm the Chief Executive of the Education and Training Foundation. I'm Jeff Greenwich, I'm the Director for Diversity of the Education and Training Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your career up until starting here? Yes, um, I started off as a teacher. I taught for, I think, 16 years in uh, South Wales. I was a head of modern languages and I taught PE as well. Then I went into the civil service. Well, it was a, it was a government quango at the time, uh, developing the national curriculum for modern languages. And then from there I spent uh, three years working in Europe on the vocational educational curriculum and came back to the UK to uh, set up what was called then the University for Industry, which became LearnDirect. And uh, there were 17 years within LearnDirect, which was really quite a formative um, period in my life. And then I retired in 2015. I'm back in work now with the um, ETF uh, Diversity and Inclusion. How your past experiences have influenced your values today? That's obviously quite a big question, but is there one defining moment in your career that you could talk about? I think there are a number of defining moments which have influenced the way I think about um, education and training um, and the way I think about equity and inclusion. Um, the first defining moment for me was when I passed my 11 plus. You know, you, you're, you're taken from one environment and you're sort of put into another environment purely because you passed an exam. And so that stayed with, with me throughout my life and saying, well, qualifications are really quite important. They're a step that individuals can, uh, can take and allow them to, to improve, to progress, uh, to develop themselves. So the next major step for me was when I got my first job in teaching within Oakdale Comprehensive. And there you're talking about um, a very white mining area within, uh, within South Wales. And there was a sort of a 22-year-old um, black man going into this community. And what I felt there was, uh, clearly I'm a bit nervous at first, but what I felt coming through there was a sense of uh, inclusion, where the people in that community wanted you to work within their community and to be part of their community because you were helping their youngsters uh, develop and to, and to progress. So for me, that was quite a defining moment how someone can really feel that they belong to a community, to a, to a school, to a college, because of how they are supported and developed within their um, first um, one or two years. And I've stayed in that area for the last um, 45 years. It's really nice to hear that it was a positive influence on you and not that it was a bad experience. Yes, clearly you have, um, you have bad, influences throughout, um, bad experiences throughout your, um, your life. And, you know, I have experience racism but again you do experience the good things alongside that the example I would um, share is once I was leaving the rugby club to go home and uh, a policeman I didn't know this policeman at the time he um, pushed me against the wall and uh, asked me what I was doing there and it was interesting that there was another policeman who stopped him from doing that and said that's Jeff Bendish no he plays rugby for us so it's, what that teaches me is that it's ignorance which causes uh, 
lots of the conflicts that we have within society. So to mitigate the risk of ignorance, it's about awareness and it's about intelligence, it's about being sharing, sharing the positive things, sharing the, the good things that mitigates the risk of individuals um, remaining ignorant. My experience is very different from Jeff's. I mean, I, I also was comprehensively educated, but I grew up in a, in a, in a very monocultural environment, a small town in Creef. Um, it, was, it was completely white. It was also sort of aggressively heterosexual as well. You know, there were no gay people where I grew up. Oh, no, definitely not. Um, I mean, it was, you know, t to be gay would, would be a, a term of abuse. Um, interestingly, always put together with being English. And that was another term of abuse. So, uh, you know, xenophobia as well. The only non-white people you ever saw were boarders at the private school up the, up the road, which just kind of added to the sense of, of otherness. You know, there were some Chinese students you know, who never mixed with anyone. So I, I grew up in a very, very kind of closed environment. My home upbringing was, it seemed to me, to be inclusive and uh, open-minded. But when I look back now, I see that actually the values that I was inculcated with were very naive. So my parents' attitude was, everyone's the same, treat everyone the same, don't understand what all this fuss is about skin colour, whatever, 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 just treat everybody the same. That was the kind of attitude that I took with me all the way through university, which was also very monocultural. I then went to live abroad, but again I lived in a monoculture. I, I worked in a place that was a different culture, but it was still a monoculture. There was no diversity there until I moved to London. And, and that just really kind of hit me like a wave that suddenly I was in a very multicultural place. I had taken a lot of the, the ignorance. I mean, ignorance is a strong word, but I mean ignorance in the sense of literally lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, lack of experience. And I, and I was armed with this value, which I thought put me in the right place, just treat everyone the same. But then I started to hear people saying, well, if you don't see my difference, you don't see me. You know, if you pretend that everyone's the same, you're pretending that there aren't problems, and there are. But also celebrating difference as well. That Absolutely. Is, especially in curriculum. It's not just about in the RE class, it spreads throughout all of the subjects. Yeah. So, so I found it very difficult, actually, when I first encountered the idea of dealing with diversity. And I had some very stupid and, in retrospect, pretty shameful kind of attitudes towards diversity and difference, um, which I had kind of shocked out of me. And from then on, it's been a kind of long journey of, of learning um, for me. And I would say it still is. And I, I've kind of learned more in the last few couple of years really than, than, I, than I had done before, really taking an interest, really diving into issues of inclusion, inclusive practices, anti-racism, you know, and it's, it's been kind of whole worlds opening up for me and a sense of lost time as well. You know, the fact that, you know, I've been operating in the professional environment for as long as I have without ever really engaging properly with these issues. And that kind of lit a fire under me, thinking, okay, I've got to make up for this lost time here. Um, I see myself as a leader. I am in a leadership position. I need to be showing leadership on this issue as well as other issues. Um, so it's been a real kind of acceleration for me. Yeah.
that sort of was leading on to the next question I was going to ask about why the Director for Diversity role was created. Um, so obviously ETF's been around since 2014. It was just a really practical response to the idea that we needed to raise our game. So we've looked at ourselves as an organisation many times over the last seven years seen the obvious fact that we weren't very diverse at our senior levels. Um, our board was a sort of mixed picture, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, but in terms of my senior team, no visible diversity. And actually, lots of diversity of background, diversity of thought, but not a lot of diversity of kind of key characteristics either. And not seeming to be able to do anything about that. You know, we, we I had failed to address that successfully. Um, and it got to the point where I thought, we, we, we simply can't go on like this. On the other hand, I can't fire someone and replace them with someone else in order to meet this agenda. What do I do? And the answer, you know, lots of people gave me the same answer, which was sometimes you just have to force the pace. You know, you can't just wait naturally for your next vacancy and hope to use it to diversify your senior team. Sometimes you have to force the pace. Uh, and you need to do something that will actually catalyze. So I thought, okay, I need to create a senior position reporting directly to me. Lots of companies are now doing this. It's good, it's new good practice. A uh, senior person with specific responsibility for diversity um, to, to put a rocket up things. Um, and the AOC were having the same thought. So we thought, great, key partner, let's do this together. Um, and we used that as an opportunity to, to take a big step forward on the agenda and we were lucky to find Jeff uh, who's helping us take that step. Where's the starting point been for you for promoting EDI practice in colleges and other parts of the sector? The starting point for me is, um, as David was saying, around um, ignorance and it's, it's that lack of knowledge and that lack of awareness. So my starting point was to raise the awareness that uh, inclusion and diversity are things that we have got to do something about but also that we are already doing things about it because the, the risk is, runs that we focus in on the negatives without sort of highlighting the positive steps that have already been taken. So my first um, thought was to highlight the things that I know are taking place out there and the Education and Training Foundation funded a program of coaching of which I was part um, two or three years ago and the output of that coaching, the immediate impact of that coaching was that people, the people who were coached thoroughly enjoyed what they did. Uh, then we asked them to take action based on what they did. So they went back into their colleges and they began little projects to raise awareness within their organisations and then to do something more positive about that. Two years in, those organisations are now running uh, black history curriculum programs. They're looking at systemic change throughout their organisations. They're raising the awareness across the sector of what they're doing and challenging other organisations, other colleges to do, to do the similar thing. So it, my starting point was awareness, but awareness which leads to a measure of impact. In other words, people doing something different to what they would have done previously. Some people might presume that a lot of this work is already in place. What are your thoughts on the suggestion that EDI is often treated as a tick box exercise? Work is already taking place and I think the challenge with um, something like um, equity, diversity and inclusion 
is that we, we think of it as being something that can be done and that is finished tomorrow. It's a very, very slow process, it's a long burn and it takes um, gen a generation to really embed inclusion and inclusivity within uh, people's culture. So small things are taking place. We are at a position now where we can begin to go much more widely within the sector to share what's taking place and to challenge other organisations to take that step forward uh, as well. We'll be doing that in November um, at the ETF conference and at the Association of Colleges conference in, in November. But that's just the starting point. What we will need to see in the following 18 months is a visible commitment from organisations that they are willing to take action and that they're willing to share the outcomes of their actions across the sector. And that's the challenge that um, David and myself we put into the college principles on Friday of this week. Just going back to the, the word equity, you've spoken in the past about the differences between inequality and equity. Could you explain a bit more about that, please? I think as David's mentioned earlier on, when you, tr when you think of people as being the same, you treat people the same, we have that sense that we're treating people equally. Equity, for me, is something slightly different. It's giving the person the leg up that they need to really contribute, to really make a difference within their own particular context. So the example of equity, I would say, is you know, when someone gets a qualification, that gives them a leg up. The, an example of equity is where you're working with someone who has a particular disability and you put uh, systems and structures and support in place to give that person the opportunity to perform as well as anyone else does. To treat people the same sometimes makes it an unequal opportunity. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And, um, and, the, and the language does matter as well, you know, because sometimes words can just, they can start to lose their meaning when they get used so often. And I, I think it really helps every now and again to stop and think, well, what do we really mean by equity? What do we really mean by equality? And other, they can just be reduced to letters almost. You know, as soon as you start talking about ED&I, you're in a risky place because it becomes mashed up and you, and you forget. Well, actually, you know, as Jeff has said, um, diversity is a fact. It's a feature of the world. It's not a thing you do. It's a thing that you, is there and you encounter. Inclusion is a practice. It is a mindset. It's something that you may do or you may not do. Equity is an outcome or a set of outcomes that you're trying to achieve. So these are very different things, it's, but often it just gets matched up as uh, one topic. So I, I, I think language uh, really matters. You also asked a very interesting question, Julia, about, you know, hasn't all this, isn't this already in train in the sector? It shouldn't it have already been happening. From an ETF perspective, you know, ultimately we're here for benefit of learners, and the way we benefit learners is through the work we do with teachers and other staff. And there are so many aspects to inclusion with both staff and learners. And I think the ETF has been good at some of them for a long time and not at others. So, for example, we've always been very strong on the idea that we need to support the sector in its work with learners with special educational needs and disabilities. It's always been a feature of our work, we've been really proud of it, really proud of the work we do with the sector in that area, which is about inclusion and equity of outcomes and so on. 
Other things, the aspects of inclusion that we focused on, we've known that sometimes barriers to participation in our work, you know, one barrier is cost. So we've always made sure that we have the ability to, to get free access. I mean, all our work is subsidised, but to get completely free access. If, for example, you worked in a you know, small voluntary sector organisation that just couldn't afford to do our training and development. Or sometimes as a way of encouraging underrepresented groups to take part, we've made you know, bursaries available to make sure that cost is not a, a barrier there. So we've always done some of the right things, but what we've never done is have a really holistic strategy. We've always been aware of the big issues, but some of them we just haven't followed through. Uh, and that's you know the journey that we're on now, I think. Are there any practices in particular that you suggest will create positive change to promote an equal, inclusive, open and diverse culture and support learners and staff in FE and ultimately change mindsets? I think um, we've discussed this um, before, the way that change happens at a number of levels. There's change taking place at the operational the level of the practitioner where individuals in organisations, in colleges, are taking action based on things that they've seen with the ETF, they've done with the ETF, and that's absolutely fine. That groundswell is really important. Another groundswell that's taking place is where you have principals and leaders of organisations, as David said, recognising that there's something that has to be done. Maybe not always knowing how to do it, but now what I'm seeing is that people are coming together and almost admitting that we don't know how to do this, but individually, but collectively, we might know how to do this, and beginning to have those conversations, which are not easy for leaders of organisations, where you're always expected to know the answers. That almost opens up a level of vulnerability as a leader, which, is, which can be uncomfortable. And what I'm seeing, what I find really quite refreshing, is that there are leaders who are willing to share that vulnerability and which allows it to open up to have a collective conversation of how they can solve the problem together. And the third level, I think the third area of work, is where you have um, organisations who work in adjacent markets, let's, let's call it markets, within the, within the sector, who are also beginning to have the same conversation as the Education and Training Foundation and as the principals. So the next opportunity or challenge is to bring those organisations to the table so that we can have that conversation at a sector level about what does an inclusive further education sector look like for students, what does it look like for staff, and what does it look like for those stakeholders, and what's their contribution to making it happen. I think, David, that, that's something which um, we're very close to being able to stimulate. And again, it's going to be a longer journey, but it's a start uh, we are looking to make. Yeah, I agree. I mean... The question is about culture change, really, isn't it? And that's what you're talking about. And um, and what's the ETF's role in culture change? You know, we have no direct influence or control over the institutions in the sector. Um, so our role is about thought leadership. Now, thought leadership can sound a bit pompous as a phrase, but we're not here to tell the sector what to think. You know, that's not our role. But we are here to help the sector work out what to think about. And we are also here to help them do that thinking in a high-quality way. And we're also here to help facilitate the actions that flow from that thinking. So all that work that, that Jeff's talking about 
I think it's actually about culture change, um, which is really hard. You know, to give an example of sort of the importance of these of simply having these conversations in a protected space. We did a joint symposium recently with the Black Ivy Leadership Group, so looking at one aspect of diversity in particular, a very important aspect. And we had a lot of senior leaders from the sector there, which was fantastic. And one of them said very openly, I've been in the sector for over 20 years, he said. I've been a senior leader in the sector for over a decade. And until the last year, he said, I didn't really think this was my problem. Now, some people might be a bit shocked by that. They might want to give them a hard time about it. That wasn't the context and that wasn't the response. I mean, actually, I was hugely encouraged by that because I thought that's a sign that there is a sea change and that people are, senior leaders are feeling, okay, this is everybody's problem and this is my problem and this is my responsibility and let's talk with each other about what we're going to do um, practically. But once you've kind of broken through that reticence, that reluctance, sometimes that embarrassment, you know, to, it, it, it's awkward, isn't it, having discussions about these uh, issues sometimes. So uh, as well as these verbal, like how will it look? Is it going to be a handbook? What's it going to look like? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? Um, what does it look like? I think it has to look like whatever we have available to use to go back to that point of ignorance, to raise the awareness that inclusion is the direction of travel, that diversity is something which exists, and that equity is the outcome that we're, that we're looking for. So whatever means we have available to us, we have, we have to use. The, the open conversation, bringing people together in, uh, in fora, is what ETF is doing, and that's a primary means of allowing people to have that safe space for these conversations. Using practitioner practice to raise the profile of what others are doing in the sector, and then challenging organisations to do sim- the same or to do better, that's another way of, uh, of increasing it. The podcasts, as we're doing here today, sharing thoughts, again, is a way of, uh, of, of doing this. And I think bringing together organisations across the sector uh, from different perspectives is another way of, uh, of showing uh, the country and the sector that there are lots of different ways of getting to that point of inclusion. And because each organisation is unique, each organisation has to take from that plethora of uh, resources the ones that have made the biggest impact in their um, in their um, structures. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was. I mean, it is a great question. What does it look like? I would say really important that uh, we don't think there's a one size fits all solution here. It depends where you're starting from. It depends what your particular strengths and weaknesses are as as an institution in inclusion, uh, and it depends what the issues are that you want to address. And effective practice can look really different in different places. So um, I'll give you a few concrete examples. I remember going to visit a college in the northeast. When I walked through the door, the first thing I encountered was a, a performance group, a choir, who were singing on that day in the in the foyer in the atrium. A, a choir made up of um, staff and students. Students all had learning difficulties, disabilities. They were doing a really high quality performance. Uh, that, that a huge amount of work had gone into 
showcasing the work of those students in performing arts. Absolutely fantastic. Everyone who came to the college that day saw that, and I bet a lot of people uh, a light went on in their mind, and they started to see those students in a different way because of what was happening there. I'll give you a different example. Uh, a different college I met, remember visiting in the Midlands. Um, my first experience as I approached the college was a security guard um, approaching me, finding out what I uh, what I needed, how he could help me, you know, showing me the right place to go, making sure that I was t- being taken care of properly, that my needs were being met, and so on. Uh, obviously, very very vigilant. Uh, and when I talked to the principal about this, mentioned this what positive experience I'd had on arriving at the college, he said that's because we take a whole college approach to our staff and our students. And all of the staff who work here are included in our safeguarding, in our prevent, you know, they feel like they have a stake in the safety and the security uh, of the students. And he went on to tell me a very powerful story of how that had helped them head off some very potentially very difficult problems because of that whole, whole college inclusion approach. But the fundamental thing, David, I think, which um, that um, highlights in my mind, is that there are three, perhaps, locuses where that evidence base is going to be situated. First, in the students, that the students feel absolutely included and that they understand that they have equal opportunity to succeed. And that the staff in organisations know that they belong in that organisation. And finally, that the college and the community know that together they've got something that they are working on together. So those are the three areas, I think, which all organisations feel comfortable as the focus for their activity. Yeah, I totally agree. And in terms of kind of measurable outcomes, you know, that's one way you can start to get a handle on it is student voice, you know, student surveys. You will get good information back. Um, staff surveys, you will get good information back, which will tell you where you are on that journey. It's not the only measure, but it's, it's mm-hmm. important. In terms of Ofsted and frameworks and reports, are there plans for that sort of change? Like, how will that change the way that organisations are, are rated? Ofsted is an interesting one because um, you could go down the compliance road and ask Ofsted to, to inspect the level of inclusion of organisations. And I suspect a lot of organisations will pass because when you go to any inspection, you, know, you pass or you fail. The, and is that a sufficient measure as to whether people are included? I come back to what David is saying around when you ask students um, how they feel, do they feel they belong, they will tell you. When, when student success rates uh, increase um, and all students are at a similar level of performance, that tells you uh, the data. Ofsted could give you a triangulation of the data, but I don't think that any one um, measure is, uh, is sufficient. The other area of work would be the VFE Commissioner uh, in their annual conversations. Just a quiet conversation around um, how do you know that your students feel included, how do you know your staff feel included, and that gives the organisation an opportunity to share their data, to share the fact that they are making these surveys, to share the fact that they are uh, on a road to inclusion with the Further Education Commissioner. So I think there are lots of ways of um, getting the evidence base and triangulating the evidence against um, student staff and a formal regulatory framework data. Yeah, it's really interesting. You and I haven't discussed Ofsted much, have we, Jeff? No. Uh, it's interesting to be hearing your response there because 
sometimes some colleagues in the sector say, well, Ofsted used to have uh, inclusion as, as a limiting grade and they should bring that back. Um, now, of course, Ofsted say, no, that's not the case. We never actually had it as a limiting grade. Um, but leave that aside. Um, the question of whether it should be. My own view is that when a college does something because Ofsted tells them they have to do it, you're immediately in the wrong place. They'll only do it insofar as they have to, at Jeff's point, you know, they'll have to in order to pass the inspection, and they may well stop doing it when they no longer have to. So it's, a, it's an outside-in way of making change happen. You can make change happen from outside-in, but inside-out is far more powerful and sustainable, and I think that is the better way to go. It comes from their values and at the heart of... Exactly so, yeah. If, if, if you're changing your behaviour in order to appear to be doing the right things, um, that can be superficial. Whereas if your behaviour is flowing from, as you've just said, a change in your, uh, your, your attitudes, your beliefs, your values, your sense of what matters, your priorities, that will flow forever. So that's, that's got to be the way to go. So David spoke about sharing practice ideas from different organisations. Have you got any examples that you wanted to discuss today about things that are happening at the moment, inclusive FE? Uh, on social media or any other initiatives which are showing positive steps forward? I think I'll go back to those three uh, areas of the practitioner level, the level of the principles and the level of sector. At a practitioner level, last year within West Suffolk, the students there were, this is an area of white students, they didn't really know what this Black Lives Matter was all about. So they set about finding out, as young people do. When they found out about it, they said, well, we need to be taught about this. Why are we taught about this? So they worked through with their teachers and their tutors a black history curriculum, which they're now teaching uh, across the year in uh, West Suffolk College. And to me, that's a prime example of where a college has taken the, the needs of their students uh, looked and worked with the students to create a product which is very, very bespoke to West, uh, West Suffolk. Because the examples they use of um, local heroes are black local heroes who live in West Suffolk. Those are people that they know, that they've seen in the streets, that they understand. So it's very, very much tailored to that uh, particular organisation. The principles can be shared elsewhere, but the content is very much tailored to West Suffolk. Then looking at the the level of the principles, and as David's mentioned, there are leaders out there who are now beginning to be very vocal about their perhaps reticence, their, um, their, the pace of change within their organisations, and they're sharing that. And they come together with other leaders to, to work out how can we work on things together across a number of colleges. And at the third level, we see people like City and Guilds, uh, Pearsons, uh, World Skills. Uh, coming together with ETF and the AOC to work together on sharing the impact of the, their inclusion drives within their organisations. So I'm pleased that these things are happening. Always you have to push for more and for and for faster. But let's t- let's embank the um, the steps we've made so far. 
So you've spoken before about this being a time for action and not just words, with reports being published and no real change happening. How close are we to that actually happening and what do you realistically think could be achieved over the next five years? I think there is action, Julia. Action is taking place. Reports will give us a state of play at any particular point in time and that's helpful to uh, triangulate and to get a measure as to where we are, and I welcome reports. But what I would really advocate is for those who are out there doing stuff and who are taking action to begin to share what they're doing much more widely. Colleges are always underestimating their ability to make impact. They often hide what they do. And I think it's time for organizations to come up front and say, we're doing this, we're not quite sure that it's right, but let's share it anyway. And let's have that confidence to share it. That, I think, would take us forward uh, in some great strides if people are willing to share what they're doing much more widely. I think um, college governing bodies are really, uh, I mean, some of always been very good on this agenda, but many others, I think, are sort of really waking up to it for the first, first time. I mean, I was talking to a governing body recently uh, that, that were considering quality and diversity. And it was a very interesting discussion, and, and you could see a, a wide range of starting points. I mean, the board itself was not terribly diverse, as, as many are, are not. And some governors were starting with the perspective of, well, we serve a community that's not all that diverse. So, you know, of course we have to get it right, but it's never going to be a top agenda item for us. And then other governors are saying, that is precisely the reason why <laughs> this is a really important agenda item for us. Because we're not simply preparing our students for success in their local community. We're preparing students for success in the world and we're preparing them to be responsible, caring, successful, generous, cooperative members of society. A very diverse, rich, multifaceted society. And we owe it to them to know how to contribute really successfully. So it really doesn't matter that our student body may not be the most diverse student body. All the more reason um, that we get this right. And I thought that was fantastic and exactly the conversation that we'd want to hear. That reminds me of the time when I went to work in Oakdale Comprehensive um, back in 1981, where the principal said that he was pleased that... Um, the school experienced a person, someone who was black, because it shook things up and it allowed the youngsters to see a different person, a different face, and to open up their eyes to the possibilities that they could have uh, leaving the mining community and working first in England, which was a strange place to work, yeah. and then in, in, in the world as a whole. Thank you very much to you both for your time today, and yeah, I look forward to speaking more on the topic. Thank you, Julian. Thank you. Thank you. Find out more about how the ETF promotes and supports equality, diversity and inclusion throughout the organisation and wider sector, please visit et-foundation.co.uk.